Welcome to the Baltic Triangle Podcast with me, Mick Ord. And me, Mark Reeson. It's certainly good to be back, Mick, and in one piece, despite all the Brexit complications and also the poor performances of our relative football teams. Everton and Fulham. Although Fulham have been doing quite well, haven't they? Not too bad. Right. This month, we'll be hearing from the Liverpool woman, whose company has taken corporate social responsibility to a whole new level, despite getting more work in Lancashire and Manchester than in the Liverpool city region. I would say it's fair to say that um, I've got relatives who are probably part of some of the problems we have in society today, and I've got relatives who are part of the solution. I've got family members who've been ravaged by drinking drugs. Um, I've worked for Department of Work and Pension for a number of years and seen the poverty. Um, I've worked with women who've been forced into prostitution. I've worked with children who've been uh, trafficked. So when you see that, um, how can you not want a better place? And we'll also be hearing from the Merseyside man who's invented a whole new lighting system, which he says could revolutionise the way in which our hospitals and care homes are lit and help patients at the same time. Basically, the lighting sets the colour of the lights according to the natural rhythm of the user. So wherever you are in the world, there'll be kind of like a natural lighting pattern and Cicada aims to mimic this to, to help support your, your health and well-being and reconnect your body clock with uh, nature. We hear a lot nowadays about corporate social responsibility, CSR. Companies large and small are very quick to tell us about the work they do in the community, whether it's for homeless people, as in the case of, say, Signature Living here in Liverpool, or Everton FC, who've won numerous awards for the good work they do in the community via their charity, Everton in the Community. But I must say I haven't met many people like Sarah Lawton from Construction Impact Framework. Her company's been up and running for only a few years, but, wait for this, CIF donate up to 50% of their profits back into the community in partnership with their clients. However, Sarah says most of her work is done outside Liverpool City region, even though she's based in the city. So what do Construction Impact Framework actually do as their core business? Well, they're a one-stop shop for the public sector when they need construction services, whether it's for a new building for the council or a hospital. All the tradespeople who have signed up to a framework are fully trained and compliant. So in effect, using a framework is a compliant way for councils to spend public money, which is obviously important, as Sarah explains. So the idea behind our business is that when the public sector buy these works from us, they have to pay us a fee. Um, and what we do is a proportion of that fee we ring fence and put aside and then we invest that money into these organisations to support things around homelessness, domestic violence, youth unemployment, knife crime because strategically I am aware that when you invest in those services it relieves the public the pressure on the public sector and it actually saves them money over a long term. So why aren't we used across Liverpool City region more often? I've got no idea because it would make sense to buy socially um, from an organisation like ourselves that is actually reinvesting public money into those much needed community services. 
But don't local authorities just go for the best value from a financial point of view? Um, they can do that to choice, but best value is totally different to cheapest price. So if you're talking best value, then a framework such as construction impact framework would offer massive value in terms of what we do for the voluntary sector which we are helping them to sustain but in terms of the level of social impact that we're driving cheapest price uh, there's, a, there's a saying buy cheap buy twice cheapest price always presents a risk to local authorities that they will not get quality of works they'll get very little true social value and they will end up paying more because what can happen is if you are working within an industry and we work within the construction industry and you're saying cheap, 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 what tends to happen is a contract can be won on a certain amount, but when you get to the end of the job, the final account is not is, is so different because actually you might need something moving. There's an extra cost for that. You might think, oh, I need that paint in a different colour. There's an extra cost for that. Because what's happened is cheapest price then also removes any flexibility you've got because you are squeezing the supply chain. So what makes you different from your competitors? Because you must have competitors, presumably, that have got a similar business model to you. Um, I think what makes us different from our competitors, there are social value frameworks out there. There are frameworks who drive social value. But they derive their social value solely from the social value that the contractor does. So, for example, we've got a project where we're doing extension to a hospital and our construction partner will take on X amount of apprentices, we'll do X amount of work in the community. So most frameworks will wrap that up as their social value. So our contractors will do that. But on top of that, we will be injecting a cash lump sum into community services um, and into initiatives that might not necessarily already exist. Because the thing you have to understand about social value is if you want to deliver true social value, you should be investing something that potentially isn't there already in existence that will have a massive impact or even a slight impact, but it is something that wouldn't be there without you. And that's, that's a real sort of a true definition of social value. So the money that you would plough into these projects, they come out of your profits, do they? That's right, yeah. What, what percentage is it on average? Do you, do you have a minimum? Yeah, on average, it's about 50% of our profits go back out into the voluntary charitable and social enterprise sector. And that's in terms of one-off payments? Um, yeah, so what we will do is we will commission the voluntary sector to, to do works. And a great example we've got is we did some work uh, with the university in, in Lancashire and then we were able to fund a worker who specialises in supporting children and women who are victims of domestic violence. This worker will be working um, specifically around educating the children in terms of them not becoming perpetrators of domestic violence. So not only supporting the woman, but actually helping the children to understand that that is not something that um, is normal. Because if you are brought up in domestic violence, you could think that was normal. We That role didn't exist. So what we did is we've, we've not only funded the role, but we work with a company called The Connectives. Um, and The Connectives went in and did an independent audit. So there are currently um, 84 families within this refuge. 
if just half of the families take up the support that we are funding, it will equate to a social return on investment of £683,000. So that's how much it would have cost had had you not moved in and provided this cash? What it is, is when you're looking at the social return on investment, so when you, so when you think of, 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 you think of somebody who's suffering from domestic violence, so if they are at home and there's an instance of domestic violence, there's a chance that it's going to be a cost to the police who respond, a cost to the NHS, okay. a cost to, um, if the house is smashed up, maybe a, a resident social landlord. So what you look at in terms of social return on investment, there are numerous calculators, but the actual value of somebody taking back control of their life and being able to change their circumstances equates to £15,894 per head. So there are different calculators that you can um, pull that social value from. It's very important, though, not to overestimate because social value, people can say, oh, we've done all this stuff. And actually, if something was already there and something was already being delivered, you've not really driven social value, just helped what is already there to continue. So who decides where that money goes? Is it you or do you work with the local authority or whichever the public sector organisation? Yeah, we uh, we work. Um, in most instances, we, we endeavour to work with the organisations that has bought from our shop if you like and um, sometimes that's more challenging than it should be because you know we we've got this money and we want to disperse it and we want to help the most vulnerable in society um, and sometimes we find that people don't understand what we do well enough or I would say in more extreme cases they're not really interested and I found that really shocking Coming from the public sector, as somebody who's delivered frontline public sector services and being passionate about changing communities, to travel around the country and have public sector workers say we're not really interested in that has been so shocking to me as an individual because they're all paid by taxpayers and they're all delivering a public service. So sometimes dispersing the money, we will take control ourselves and say, you know, you're not responding to emails, you don't communicate with us. We're going to tell you how we're going to disperse of this money. We're going to give you all the reporting. You've got any concerns, then let us know. Um, that's a last resort. The best sort of outcomes in terms of, of working with public sector partners is when they collaborate with us. Um, so it's we've done some really innovative stuff. Um, but it doesn't mean to say that it's easy. And I suppose my assumption, having sat on many multi-agency strategic partners haven't written employability plans for the city haven't done all this type of thing i was like i feel like sometimes i'm pushing water uphill it doesn't make sense so um i think for me is it a training need is it something more i've got no idea why is it you've got this such a deep interest in the sustainability of communities or yeah uh, why is it you've got this interest in communities beyond your particular company yeah so um i i come from a large family so me mum is one of nine my dad is one of 11 I've got tons of first cousins tons of second cousins and i would say we all have very different experiences and i would say it's fair to say that um i've got relatives who are probably 
part of some of the problems we have in society today and I've got relatives who are part of, solution, part of the solution. I've got family members who've been ravaged by drinking drugs. Um, I've worked for Department to Work and Pension for a number of years and seen the poverty. Um, I've worked with women who've been forced into prostitution. I've worked with children who've been uh, trafficked. So when you see that, um, how can you not want a better place? How can you not be touched and think, well, actually, you know, we can make society fairer. Um, there's a lot of money to be made in, in certain businesses. And I think it's about understanding you can be a profitable business and still make a real change for, for, you know, for the better in the world. Why would you not want to do that? I think, I think some people would say that's the job of the government. That's the job of the council. Yeah, I'm sure they would. Um, I think, and, I, and I'll talk about Liverpool City Council here specifically, have faced major financial challenges, and that's going forward. So they, they, they've got a certain amount of finances and have to cut their cloth accordingly. So if a government, if a council um, are not in a position to fund non-statutory services, and then you are a responsible business and you can make a profit and you understand communities, which I think is one of our massive US unique selling points, USPs, then why would you not want to do that? Um, for what do your competitors say when you talk to them about this? Maybe someone that doesn't have the, the same kind of corporate social responsibility that you seem to do? Um, not a lot. Um, I've had one competitor say, no one's really in, interested in the social value. It's, you know, I've been called pink and fluffy. Um, but ultimately, they are profitable businesses. So they are they are probably in the system where they have, for a number of years, written their social value reports from what their contractors have um, have delivered. So what I see is that we are disrupting the industry because we're doing things differently. One of the things that um, has sort of come to my attention is that there is very little regulation around capital monies and assets. So I've seen some good practice and I've seen some really bad practice and I've seen some really questionable practice um, that would go against the ethics of any normal citizen in the street because um, when you sort of are looking at things are done and you can, we can see sometimes there is an abuse of the public sector purse. And that is horrifying to me as a taxpayer and as somebody who is, you know, donates to food banks and as somebody who is contacted every year by a local school to support their families who can't feed the children over Christmas. So there's no place for greed in society to the point what it's gotten to us, to the point where it is, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, some councils can't do it. And I, and I think the question shouldn't be, why should you do it? Why not do it? If you can help, why not do it? Because you never know your own path. And you could actually be in a situation where you could find yourself destitute. Wouldn't you want somebody to help you? What is the reaction of politicians and council officers when you're pitching to them and you're explaining to them the social value from the contract with your organisation? Um, I've had I have um, politicians and councillors who are absolutely like this is this is fantastic, and then I have 
a lot of the response is who who's in your shop um if we can't give give particular contracts to those people then we won't use your shop which is questionable um we have people who clearly don't understand it um recently was fortunate to sit down with with somebody from the house of lords and they were just amazed with what we do and how we do it um so yeah i think i think it's for me it's very short-sighted if you can't see the benefits that a business that is about more than making money that is putting public money back into vulnerable communities what local authority or organization wouldn't want to buy from that company so it's you know there's definitely definitely sort of uh, a challenge for us in terms of winning hearts and minds and given the the current financial situation that many councils find themselves in do you look forward to the sort of short to medium term future with optimism or do you think it's going to get more difficult um, it's going to get more difficult. Um, I I think one of the concerning things is when you've got when you've when you've got a situation that is currently faced by so many local authorities. Everything's around. We just need the cheapest price. Well, actually, what is more important is responsible commissioning, not cheap commissioning. So you can go and get that cheap contract. You can go and. You can go and get something, you know, I've just saved £100,000 on this, but but let me tell you what happens um, also in the construction industry. You'll have a large contractor. They might be expecting to be paid £100, and they'll say, OK, we'll do it. We'll do it for 70 because we're desperate for this work. Where do they get that other £30 from? Because they still need £100 to, to, to build, to do that job that they've been commissioned to do. Well, you'll either get additional costs during the duration once the contracts are signed or what will happen is the people who work for that builders will not get paid that then affects their supply chain which can put some of those companies into liquidation which you've seen with the likes of the, the big Carillion that went bust that is so irresponsible for anybody to commission in a way that can result in job losses, not of the stakeholders, of the shareholders of the company, but of the dad and lad who are out there every day working for maybe a living wage, maybe minimum wage. So the more tightly budgets are squeezed, the emphasis shouldn't be on cheapest price. It should be on responsible commissioning. How are you buying? Buying a way that helps businesses sustain. Buying a way that puts something back into communities. Because in a way, in buying in that manner, you are paying it forward. You are. I'll give you a really good fiscal example because a lot of people like to talk about money. Uh, we worked with the NHS um, organisation, and we had some money to import. And they had a they had a situation with with volunteers. So volunteers, these volunteers met and meet outpatients who struggled to get to their appointment. They couldn't use the wheelchairs in the hospital because the porters needed them. So they were unable to perform their duties. So we went in and we said, what we'll do is we will invest in your volunteers and we will buy them X amount of, of wheelchairs. So over the course of 12 months, we then studied it and we had feedback from the volunteer group and we met them and we did one-to-ones. Um, so the volunteers themselves were, were mostly retired. 
Their mental health and well-being had improved because they were no longer isolated. They had a purpose to get up. They were fit and healthy and active because they're pushing people to and from. Um, we had all the sort of quantitative health and well-being benefits of the patients whose stress levels were, were affected because they knew they would have somewhere to meet them. And then we sat with the, the team from the NHS who said, actually, these wheelchairs are used X amount of times a year. The amount of money we have saved in those outpatients not missing their appointments equates to £240,000 a year. Over five years, it was £1.4 million. So when I'm saying about responsible commissioning, that is exactly what it's about. So that trust will potentially save, could save more, you know, money, £1.4 million in in actually thinking, working with their sort of business like ourselves. The other thing about some of our competitors, because the area is so muddy in terms of lack of regulation and framework language can be misleading, there is not always the financial transparency that they should be. How do you know what you're paying for procurement? Well, I'll tell you what we do. We invite, we welcome our public sector partners to come in and see exactly how much money we are invoicing supply partners for. We've told you to use our framework, it costs £100. Come in and have a look and you will see £100 worth of invoices. What an incredible story, Mick. Um, very heartwarming to hear that she's really that driven to make a difference for the better in society. It's incredible that we're not doing more to, to encourage that kind of work in, in our region. I think it is. I mean, um, I think one of the problems is with hard-pressed local authorities, as, as Sarah said, is that they need the, they need the cheapest work, they would argue, straight away. But sometimes, if you look long-term, it's not the cheapest, as, as Sarah was saying. But there's no easy solution to this, is it? Because you, we all know the pressure local authorities are under. And yet Sarah's saying, well, look, if you have a bit more of a longer-term approach, then the social value of what you do can outweigh the actual monetary cost. It, she makes some incredibly convincing arguments, though, Mick, doesn't she? I mean, you know, there must be an element of responsibility from anybody commissioning any work for the public sector. Yeah, there is, and and I'm and I'm sure they are doing that to a degree. But she, it's interesting that uh, the bulk of her work is, she said, outside of the Liverpool City region, in Greater Manchester, Lancashire, and other places. You hope at some stage that she will be able to get work, her company will be able to get work, or at least pitch for work in the region. It would be really good to see more uh, more local-based companies benefiting from the way that she she approaches uh, that, that kind of relationship she has with, with any of the commissions that she gets. And, and, and yeah, and you can understand the scepticism of, um, of not only some local local authorities, whether that's offices or politicians, and also the more traditional building companies, the more traditional developers. That's not the way they do things, but she certainly believes that um, what she's doing is a game changer. Uh, we shall see. Well, it's really refreshing as well to see that she offered complete transparency in the way that she does stuff as well. I mean, you know, it, it's going to be obvious to anybody what's all there, how, how she does stuff. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, so what have you been up to this month, Mark? Well, it's very good of you to ask. Thank you very much. Um, on one of my many jaunts into the Baltic, Mick, I discovered a young inventor who's got a really interesting take on how many of our traditional buildings, whether that be hospitals or office buildings, are lit. Well, let's shed some light on that then.
There's a real upsurge in the notion of health and well-being at the moment. The hours we work, the quality of sleep, the work-life balance, these are all topics of discussion that come up in conversations more and more these days. I spoke to Sam Lutus, a medical writer who's based in the Baltic, and he's also invented an incredibly innovative range of products which could seriously revolutionise the way we view lighting. Thanks very much for joining me today. Could you just give me some idea, Sam, of, of what it actually is that you've invented? Yes, yeah, so um, cicada lighting um, is uh, straightforward and innovative uh, new type of circadian lighting. So circadian is, is the word we use uh, with the body clock. So basically the lighting sets the color of the light according to the natural rhythm of the user. So wherever you are in the world, there'll be kind of like a natural lighting pattern and Cicada aims to mimic this to, to help support your, your health and well-being and reconnect your body clock with uh, nature. Where exactly do you think it was that we kind of became out of sync with our body clock then, Sam? Because as I said, there's a real notion that we are slightly out of sync. Yeah, so I mean, I think this is a fascinating topic. I'll probably talk a while on this, but I think it goes back probably a few hundred years. You know, uh, since the dawn of um, gaslighting, kind of society changed quite radically. So that's when we started having some of the late night activities we see, you know, uh, in London with gaslighting. You know, that's when you had the late night theatres, the, the bars and saloons, you know, they'd, they'd be open late into the night. It's a real kind of like starting point for, for modern society and lifestyle. And um, over the years, you know, we, we since, since uh, electric and artificial lighting, we have daylight on, on tap at any time. We kind of lose that kind of connection with uh, the natural environment. Um, I'm, I'm prior to, to the lighting, time went by the, the sun rather than the time on your watch or, or, or a clock. And, and Cicada is kind of trying to look backwards to, to, to go forwards with that and, and, and try and get re, re in touch with the, the natural rhythm. So tell me, how did you come up with this uh, this this idea then? How what's what's it based on? How did you stumble upon it? Yeah, so um, my, my personal story, I guess, is um, I'm really uh, sensitive to, to light. You know, I'm kind of the, the the guy up at the crack of dawn, and if there's any uh, you know uh, light coming through through my window of a morning, you know, it's uh, it's, it's got me uh, firing on all cylinders. But um, what I found was a real frustration uh, with what's out there. So I tried some of the the smart lighting and. Just couldn't find what I was after. I was like, this guys, this is like this we should have lighting set to, you know, kind of our, our, our natural environment. I just couldn't find it. And there's also the, the human-centric lighting, which is more of an architectural solution, but they're all aimed at kind of biohacking the body and, and, and trying, you know, to to, to to make us even higher kind of um, a higher state of uh, busyness and, and activity rather than, you know, trying to step back and say, you know, re reconnect us with the environment. And as a result, I came up with the idea for my lighting, speaking with a few people in the, the Merseyside and Liverpool areas. I was like, okay, well, we need to do something about this. We need to have lighting that's geared towards our health and well-being, not just energy efficiency. It's, it's kind of an outdated look. And, and as we're starting to understand um, light in society more and more, you know, the 2017 Nobel Prize in Physiology was uh, awarded to uh, circadian researchers who, who would... Uh, like contributed significantly to the field, and I think um, Chrono Health is is which which relates you know health according to the time of day and the body clock on, in touch with our kind of biorhythm. You know, is going to be a, a bigger area in uh, health and well-being. You know, over the next ten years. So tell me a little bit about how it affects the body then to be to be out of sync, and tell me what your product does. Maybe you could just talk talk us through what how your product works. Yes. Yeah, so um, probably start with the. Um, 
it helps i think it does help to understand kind of like the physiology and and basically um we've like life on earth has evolved uh to work on a, a daily 24-hour rhythm uh, in time with the sun you know you can look at any form of life and they have these 24-hour clocks inside them um, and this is the, the strongest regulator of this is lighting in the environment and particularly the blue light so as a result with the artificial light of the, the 24-7 uh, modern uh, society uh, we actually send the wrong information into the body clock so uh, this can um, cause issues such as misalignment and jet lag in our own environment so uh, around about 70% of us have one hour or more jet lag, mainly resulting from the, the, this uh, incorrect lighting. And so um, the idea of cicada lighting is that it sets the lighting to the natural rhythm. So it helps reconnect the user's body clock with nature. Um, and it's found that, you know, when we do have the misalignment, it can have a big impact on uh, productivity, health and well-being. And, and there's more research being done all the time, kind of understanding this, particularly in, in, in populations such as shift workers and uh, yeah, people who travel through time zones and understanding how this impacts our, our health. The idea um, of the lighting is that it sets the light according to the time of day. So it'd be much kind of like softer, warmer lighter in the evening, almost candlelight uh, in, in, in the evening and in the early mornings. Um, and during the day, you actually, to function optimally, you actually need really bright light during the day and then absence of the blue light at kind of the night and the morning time. So cicada really uh, matches that and, and it's always going to be uh, dependent on where you are in the world and the seasons and the, the kind of the sunrise and the sunset and, and what's happening there. So cicada matches the, the, the natural rhythm and helps therefore reconnect your body clock um, with, with nature. Um, and the idea of uh, Cicada compared to um, some of the other systems out there, such as smart lighting and architectural lighting, which are very complex and, and, and are really designed at the tech market. Um, so we're actually taking a purely health and well-being approach. And due to some of the differentiators of, of, of the technology, we, we will be able to protect uh, real, uh, real world research in, 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 the he in health. And, Certainly that's one of the things we hope to do going forward and we're working with uh, Durham University and as well uh, Liverpool John Moores and the University of Salford looking into that. So it, it's really interesting to find that you're a yet another example for me of, of, of some, someone who's entrepreneurial, innovative and obviously creative in the Baltic area. Give me a little bit of an understanding of, of how and why you connect with the Baltic. My journey very much started here um, in, in Liverpool and, and, and has, has brought me to the Baltic. And um, I guess my first interactions, I, I, I don't come from a, a business uh, background, you know, I'm not an ex-marketeer or, or ex kind of fund manager or anything like that. You know, I've, I've come very much from a different angle from the health healthcare um, angle. I, I used to be a pharmacist and currently I work um, a full-time job on the side as well uh, as a medical writer. Um, but I had this idea that I wanted to do, but I didn't know how to do it. And it's only through kind of uh, speaking to, to people who have, have been there or, or at least have, you know, the business uh, now as well. And um, kind of the, the, the support network that, that's actually really strong uh, in the Liverpool uh, city region. Um, and as a result, you know, I've, I've, I've moved uh, over from the world to, to, to Liverpool um, and, and now work in the Baltic and, and the amount of, you know, creative people, um, just, just in my office alone, you know, I've got videographers, um, animators, web designers, kind of all the people you, you want to have around you when you, you're starting a business. What's the long-term plan for you in this product? 
So uh, we're currently at quite an early stage. Um, so we, we have the idea, we have all the technology we want to build ready. We have the teams in place at Durham University. We're hoping to actually you know, get straight into the clinic with some user testing once, once we get going with the uh, product development. And really the, the, the biggest uh, piece of the puzzle um, would be, I would say, uh, investments. So we would really like to, to um, secure investment for the next 12 months and we, um, you know, would like to have someone who wouldn't just invest, but also provide some some guidance there as well. Um, so yeah, we're we're looking for kind of like a, an investor kind of partner in the business at the moment. Um, and yeah, going forwards in the really long term, we we really see this as more more than just a lighting business as well. It would be kind of looking at challenging the way we view lighting in society, and hopefully society might even kind of uh, change a little with with kind of a different perspective on that. You've, you've spoken uh, very briefly to me uh, about about the kind of ideal scenarios for your product to be used. Give us some some examples of where you see the lighting. For example, we talked about it being used in medical facilities, but there's all sorts of applications, isn't there? In the medical setting, you know, we would look to see how it would impact patients in critical care. You know, there's a real problem with, uh, particularly in elderly patients, with delirium in hospitals and, and people uh, losing kind of all sense of time and place. And it's actually somewhat of a medical emergency that can really impact the patient in the long term. Um, and we're hoping that with uh, in, implementing the lighting that, you know, we might be able to, um, you know, improve the physiology, but also, you know, just keep them in a sense of place and, and therefore, you know, improve the kind of well-being in, in, the, in the care setting. But, you know, we, we could go to, to lots of different settings. So in the office, you know, Britain's kind of unfortunately labeled as a, a non, you know, the workers are, you know, productivity has not been increasing as much as people would have liked and working like the, the long hours, you know, we're, we're subjected to office lighting for a long time of the day. And generally it's insufficient for, for daytime lighting. It's so, it's so weak that the lighting we have in our offices that, you know, it's not providing the biological stimulus we need to uh, function fully. Um, but then we go home in the evenings and we're, we're in front of our iPads, our laptops, our TVs, etc. And this, this can have a big impact on our sleep. So, you know, we're, we're kind of getting hit at all angles by uh, the, the artificial lighting and, um, you know, it's, it's impact on our body clock. And as a result, you know, we're, we're, not, we're not kind of functioning optimally. You know, the immune system's reduced, the, your sleep's impacted, your mood, your mental health. It's, you know, it's, it's a real cocktail of, uh, of effects. It sounds to me like it would have a profound effect on the whole of society. I mean, from what you're saying, it could be even from cradle to grave. And obviously, some point, certain points along the way. I mean, obviously, it could be nursery, it could be primary school, it could be, could be prisons, it could be medical situations. Who else is doing this kind of groundbreaking research? Anybody else doing it? So it's, it's actually, in terms of the real world research, so there's a lot of kind of like uh, early stage science and kind of the theoretical work. But one of the problems um, with the research out there and, and conducting a real world study is that the lighting that we currently have, and not including Cicada, is it's just so expensive. And because there's no kind of unique features to the lighting, the lighting companies can't protect their technology. So... It's actually, you know, it could do them some harm if, if they were spending all the money on, on this kind of health research, then, you know, the competitors just kind of move on. So, so kind of one of the differences with Cicada is that, you know, we have some protectable features and we actually hope to be lower cost than, than our competitors. So 
we feel we can compete uh, and even conduct, uh, you know, real world research and, and also make real world research easier to conduct and more viable. So we feel like we can take a unique approach to the market by producing an evidence base behind, you know, you know, kind of the put our money where our mouth is kind of thing and say, you know, we work and we will uh, improve um based on on data that we have produced in, in, in the real world, um, you know, some, some of these issues that we face as a result. So how can people follow what's, what you're doing and, and how can people get involved? Should they want to get involved with you? What, what can people do to contact you if they need to? Yes, yeah, so um, well, we're currently uh, in, in the process of building a website. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be Cicada, which is C-I-R-C-A-D-A dot life. And, and uh, that, that should be up and running soon. Um, we're on LinkedIn as well. Um, so, so please follow us on, on LinkedIn. Um, and as well, if, 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 you're, if you're interested, just, just do get in touch. Um, so my email address is info at cicada.com. So, so please, please do get in touch. Sam, that's fantastic. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Good stuff there from uh, Sam Lutus who actually works in the same office as me. Well, Sam had some really, really interesting things to say. Uh, he's, a young, he's a young guy. He's got uh, some incredible ideas. And it would be really, really good uh, to, to, see, to see someone come in and, and, and take him, help him to go to the next level. Yeah, it would be good. So if you're interested in that, um, Sam did give out his email details. But um, if you didn't catch them, uh, then you can always email us at the usual address, which I'll give out soon, and uh, and we can pass your details on to him. Sam is looking for investment, and he's looking for guidance as well. It'd be great to see his invention actually see the light of day, see what it did there, in a few years' time. Always impressed, Mick, at the way you can just beautifully segue into those little, uh, little link, little jokes. Um, well, that's pretty much it for us this month. Um, if you've got any stories that you want to update us with, or if there's anything else that's going on that you feel that we should be included in our next podcast, then please feel free to get in touch. As Mick says, the usual address will always work for us. Anyway, that's about it, as I said. So all the very best until we see you again. And the email address is mick at mickord.com. See you next month. See you.